0: Our next speaker this morning is Dr. Thomas DiLorenzo. And Dr. DiLorenzo is a professor of economics at Loyola College in Baltimore, Maryland. And he's going to be speaking to us this morning about his new book, Hamilton's Curse. Uh, thanks, Marka. I, too, have never been arrested with Jeff Tucker, but uh, I'm, willing to, I'm willing to try. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, The bars are open late here in Auburn. (laughs) Jeff has four kids, so he doesn't go to the bar very often. Uh, Is it four or is it it six? No, I lose track. Well, well, my book, um, Hamilton's Curse, that's not it, um, uh, explains um, the current economic crisis. I wrote a book on Alexander Hamilton. My my, uh, uh, publicist at Random House wrote a great press release in October when it came out saying, uh, this, this is the book that explains the origins of the current economic crisis. And, and uh, it was apparently written so well, it, it was in, intriguing to NBC News because, you know, how could a book on Alexander Hamilton explain uh, what's going on? And so uh, they invited me on uh, uh, MSNBC, The Morning Joe Show, and sat me down next to Pat Buchanan. And, and the first thing he says is, Alexander Hamilton is my hero. <laughs> and so, and, so, and I'm, I'm supposed to explain my book uh, trashing Alexander Hamilton, on, and so he let me speak for about ten seconds, and then it became a shouting match, and the three of them shouted me down. And so, so and it's on the web, but you you can't understand what the heck the book would, is about if you were to watch it because of that. But. Uh, <laughs> So I just gave up, and, uh, but I did get one final word in, and I told him at least Aaron Burr had a good reason for shooting someone, unlike Dick Cheney. And that made it onto NBC News. But uh, so in, in the short time I have, I, I thought I'd uh, uh, ask or answer two questions. One, is there a Hamilton cult in America? And then uh, a second question: uh, Briefly, you know, what is Hamiltonianism anyway? And uh, uh, there's there is a bit of a Hamiltonian cult. Uh, it's not like the, it's not as big and powerful as the Lincoln cult, which has been on display in the past month with Lincoln's uh, 200th birthday. But I'm, I just have some quotes from some of the people that I quote in my book um, that illustrate that there is sort of a cult-like behavior behind Alexander Hamilton. Uh, my friend Clyde Wilson told me that when he visited friends in New York City. About 20 years ago, they took him to this 300-year-old church where Hamilton is buried. And, uh, and there were flowers in the grave. And he said the Wall Street people put fresh flowers on his grave every week. And so, that's, <laughs> so they certainly uh, you know, revere Hamilton. And well, here's his most famous biographer these days is Ron Chernow. And he said this, Hamilton is the prophet of the capitalist revolution in America, end quote. And, of course, that is dead wrong. He, he was not a capitalist. He was a mercantilist. Uh, he he could, should be, better be called the prophet of uh, mercantilism in America. David Brooks, uh, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, neoconservative author, said this, Hamilton created capitalism. One guy did it, um, <laughs> created capitalism. Forrest MacDonald says, Hamilton is responsible for America becoming the richest, most powerful, and freest nation in the history of the world again, one guy, uh, here, this is what, uh, what Pat Buchanan actually said to me was, how can you criticize Hamilton? He's the architect of the American economy, end quote, that's a quote. So again, there's this idea that there was one man, sort of like the Wizard of Oz behind a curtain, um, the architect of the whole economy. Um, there's a, a museum, uh, New York Historical Society had a, a, this, uh, uh, a book published And they had a display entitled, Alexander Hamilton, the man who made America. So so again, there's this idea that there was this one man out there uh, molding America in his image, I I guess. And um, there's a political scientist named Stephen Knott who said this in one of his books. Hamilton is the founder of a great Republican empire that explored the outer reaches of space, welcomed millions of immigrants, led the effort to defeat fascism and communism, produced countless technological advances, and abolished slavery and Jim Crow. So all, all one guy is responsible for all that. He, never, he, never, he didn't mention any of the bad things that the American government has done over the years that Hamilton is supposedly the creator of, just, just these things. Uh, David Brooks and William Crystal, when they, uh, when they announced uh, what national greatness conservatism was, uh, which is on display today in Iraq, among other places. Uh, this was a 1997 Wall Street Journal article. They said this, conservatives need to reinvigorate the nationalism of Alexander Hamilton and Henry Clay and Teddy Roosevelt. So, so the neocons think of themselves as sort of the political heirs of Hamilton. Uh, Michael Lind, another, I, don't know, I guess you call him a liberal slash neoconservative, Uh, Most of the great American statesmen have been nationalists in the Hamiltonian tradition. In the Civil War, Hamiltonian defenders of national unity dealt a crushing blow to Jeffersonian champions of states' rights, end quote. Uh, George Will uh, said in one of his columns, Americans honor Jefferson, but we live in Hamilton's country. And that's certainly true. I I argue in my book. Uh, The Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., which is the oldest uh, so-called think tank in Washington, uh, they have something called the Hamilton Project. It's a big, long series of proposals for economic intervention of all kinds. And naturally, it's called the Hamilton Project. And um, it's financed by Wall Street banksters, including uh, uh, Reuben, Clinton's former uh, Clinton's, uh, Treasury Secretary, Hamilton Project. Uh, when, when the first bailout occurred, when Bush was still president, uh, Forbes.com uh, got out there and defended the bailout right away, as did the Wall Street Journal in, in a few articles. And in, uh, in one of the articles in Forbes.com was entitled, uh, Ron Paul versus Alexander Hamilton. The bailout plan is conservative and constitutional, by someone named Jerry Bauer. And so they went, since Ron Paul is a Jeffersonian, uh, and, and proudly so, Uh, This guy was saying, uh, uh, don't believe either Jefferson or Ron Paul that the bailout is a bad idea. It's a good idea. Hamilton would approve. Uh, Then in the Wall Street Journal, John Steele Gordon came out and blamed the whole economic mess on Thomas Jefferson. (laughs) Not not Alan Greenspan, Thomas Jefferson. Here's what he says. How could the richest and most productive economy in the world has ever known have a financial system so prone to periodic and catastrophic breakdown? One answer is the baleful influence of Thomas Jefferson. (laughs) This is October 10th, 2008, Wall Street Journal. To Jefferson, the concept of central banking, Hamilton's idea, was what today might be called a giveaway to the rich. And so he makes the case that the reason for the current crisis is that the Fed is not powerful enough. We need a more powerful Fed. And and there are too many government agencies that regulate financial markets. They are. We need one super regulator. And Bernanke was making sort of making a case for that two days ago in a speech in front of the Council of Foreign Relations that I caught on uh, the faux news channel. And he uh, he's arguing for a, uh, what does he call it, a uh, systemic risk uh, authority. Uh, a new central planning authority that will regulate all risk-taking in America. And so so this is just a few examples of uh, anything from the Wall Street Journal to Forbes to political scientists and academe uh, saying these things about, to Patrick and saying these things about Hamilton. And it really is a cult-like following. And the second question I have is, well, what is Hamiltonianism? What, is, what are Hamilton's core ideas that all these... These pretty influential people, William Crystal, David Brooks, Pat Buchanan, uh, George Will, uh, you know, revere so much. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll just get on a list. Well, he was the founding father of American nationalism, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, Clyde Wilson defends nationalism as this, the unhealthy love of one's government accompanied by the aggressive desire to put down others. That's not nationalism. Patriotism, on the other hand, according to Wilson, is... The wholesome, constructive love of one's land and people, different than nationalism. Uh, Hamilton wanted a foreign policy that would pursue, in his words, imperial glory. I uh, quote uh, the historian Clinton Rossiter from Cornell, the late Clinton Rossiter, is saying, Hamilton's overriding purpose was to build the foundation of a new empire. And so you can see why Jefferson didn't like him very much. He, he thought that Jefferson thought the role of government was the protection of life, liberty, and property, and not to create an empire. Uh, he proposed, Hamilton proposed a king like chief executive uh, at the Constitutional Convention and the effective abolition of states' rights or federalism. And of course, we achieved that. Uh, Hamilton philosophically was a Jacobin. He was constantly imploring anyone who would listen to give limitless powers to the central state, uh, assuming that wise men like himself would use that power in the public interest. I, uh, I quote Rossiter again. Rossiter went through Hamilton's speeches and writings and came up with uh, about a hundred different phrases that Hamilton used for the public interest. He was always making the, uh, the argument that we need to expand the state uh, in the public interest, the national interest, the community interest. He, he's very creative use of uh, language. Hamilton was the founding father of constitutional subversion. He literally invented the notion of implied powers and a living constitution. He did this in his, his uh, uh, statement on the constitutionality of a central bank which he uh, wrote for George Washington and where he uh, he essentially said that, uh, well, yes, the Constitutional Convention considered a central bank, a national bank, but rejected it. But you need to read between the lines of the Constitution. And If you read between the lines, there is room for a bank run by politicians out of the nation's capital. Jefferson's view was essentially that there's blank space between the lines. That there's nothing in there. And so, uh, and, but, but uh, Hamilton, Hamilton uh, argued that the necessary and proper clause of the Constitution uh, allows for a bank. Jefferson came back and said, well, no, what you're saying is it's convenient. It would be convenient to have a government-run bank to deposit tax revenues in. But it's not necessary because we have banks. There there, there are banks everywhere. You need a government-run bank. But uh, Hamilton won the argument sort of uh, because George Washington did go along with the creation of the first bank of the United States. But the way in which he won the argument is George Washington wanted the District of Columbia to border his property in Virginia. And so the deal was George Washington went along with the creation of the first Bank of the United States, precursor of the Fed, if when they moved to the the nation's capital to what is now Washington DC, it would be adjacent to Mount Vernon. And so that was the political deal he signed off on the Bank of the United States. Hamilton invented the notion of implied war powers. He advocated a standing army and I'm convinced, and I make the argument in my book, is the reason he wanted a standing army, which Jefferson did not, was he wanted a standing army of tax collectors to intimidate Americans, not to not to defend against foreign invaders. And he proved that to me in uh, in by by leading fifteen thousand troops with George Washington in the Whiskey Rebellion into Pennsylvania to put down a tax revolt. That was a standing army of of conscripts. The the soldiers were conscripts. The officers were mostly affluent bondholders, government bondholders from the eastern seaboard who wanted to make sure there was enough money in the treasury through the whiskey tax, among other things, to pay off their bonds. And so uh, I'm convinced that that's why he wanted a standing army he wanted a standing army of tax collectors. Uh, he provided the original intellectual argument for a large national debt. Uh, John Still Gordon, who I mentioned before, wrote a book called Hamilton's Blessing. Uh, Hamilton argued that a large national debt would be a, a public blessing and the reason he gave for this was that it would enable the government to grow much larger than what the Constitution allowed for. He, he, he was Machiavellian in this argument and he said that uh, uh, it would tie the wealthy people of the country to the government because they would be the bondholders and they would therefore always be willing to lobby for bigger, higher taxes to make sure that there was enough money to pay off their bonds and he was right. Uh, Just as we tie poor people today to the state, he wanted to tie the wealthy. And of course, that worked for a long time. That was the the basis of the Whig Party and then the Republican Party in the 19th century. He despised men like Jefferson, who he said, quote, has an excessive concern for liberty, end quote. (laughs) Uh, After Jefferson gave his first inaugural address, laying out his extremely limited government views, uh, you know, that government is best, which governs least, was Jefferson's view. Uh, He was denounced by Hamilton, the speech was, as, quote, the symptom of a pygmy mind. Um, There's a Fed publication called A History of Central Banking in America that boasts that Hamilton was, quote, the founding father of central banking in America, end quote. It even says that he sounded like a modern Fed chairman. And I was telling someone this morning that I I tell some of my students that Greenspan always sounded to me like my, my, uh, my old uncle with Alzheimer's. He... Crazy sounding, these congressional speeches he would make, and I would read some of them. I'd bring them into class and read their Greenspan's comments, and it's like you're on and on and on, and nothing, no two sentences are connected. And and so, yeah, Hamilton did talk like that. You know, I have read all of his reports and, and speeches. Uh, it was Hamilton who invented the big lie that the states were never sovereign, and that the Constitution was somehow created by the whole people of the United States. He he invented that that argument out of thin air. And here's what Clinton Rossiter says about Hamilton and the Constitution. The principles of nationalism and broad construction expounded by Hamilton and his disciples have long monopolized constitutional law. The formula for congressional authority today, this is back in the 1960s, he's writing, the formula for congressional authority reads the commerce power plus the war powers plus the power to tax and spend for the general welfare times the loosest possible reading of the words necessary and proper, and I quote, I quote him also as saying he really provided the roadmap for generations of lawyers to twist the words of the Constitution, because Hamilton's view of the Constitution was that properly interpreted, it could be a potential rubber stamp for unlimited government, just the opposite of Jefferson's view that it could be something that would constrain government, and so uh, he was also the founding father of. Uh, capitalism. I have 30 seconds left. I'll quote William Graham Sumner, who wrote a great biography of Hamilton, which is online. He said, Hamilton naturally could not consent to a policy which would have dictated to him to hold his rash hands when his whole being was in a quiver to seize that which he thought was going wrong and impress upon it at once and with unshrinking reliance on his own judgment." So he was sort of an early day Barack Obama in that regard when to regulate and control all human behavior. Thank you very much.